0: I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
1: There is a fine gent christened Drew
0: Litherland, malt, sow, and then reap. There is a fine gent christened rule live the land And he has green fingers on both of his hands I'll be good to the land And the land will be good to me With a co-op of comrades he dreamed a bold dream To mulch, sow and then reap with a co-op of comrades he dreamed of all dreams To grow food for his kinsfolk as nature decreed I'll be good to the land and the land will be good to me Woo-hoo. By the edge of the forest they spy
2: That was the song that has replaced our normal introductions sung by Robin Gray, who is our guest on the show. Welcome, everyone, to Greenhorns Radio, radio for young farmers, by young farmers. I am your host, and I'm pleased to be joined today by Robin Gray. Hello, Robin. Hey.
1: Hey, Severin. Happy, happy Tuesday.
2: Happy Tuesday. And, and it was a happy Tuesday not so long ago that we were singing and learning together on the songs of your boat in Mary England. Would you mind introducing yourself And your work to our fine audience of agrarian listeners?
1: Certainly. Um, So my name's Robin Gray. I'm a a folk singer and social historian based in London, England, and I specialize in learning songs that um, talk to people about land rights and how people have have won rights to do with land and housing in England, Ireland, Wales, and Scotland, and how some of those rights have been lost and uh, found some lovely old songs along the way which have been dusted off, and I really enjoy traveling around the country teaching people.
2: So for the, for the, for the beginners here, um, when it comes to land rights, and you know, in the U.S., we, are, we just take so much for granted, a lot of private property uh, frameworks, could you maybe give a little bit of a um a framing of what you mean by land rights
1: yeah, for sure um I mean there was a time a thousand years ago where everybody in um in anglo saxon England would have um owned their own land and would have you know all been sort of small what we would consider to be small scale f- um, family farmers and over the last thousand years, people have had their land um Taken away from them either directly or sort of forced off it by economic means to the point where most of us live in cities now, and um, we we have uh, have a democracy in our country, but it's very much hanging on the um, the skeleton of feudalism. And indeed, in um, in Britain, uh, less than a third of a percent. Of people own two thirds of the land, so it's one of the highest concentrations of land in the hands of the fewest people of anywhere in the world.
2: I just read about Scotland. It's forty percent of the land is owned by four hundred and twenty-three people.
1: Yep, yeah, it's a it's a pretty close-knit group of of landowners, and they've done a remarkably good job of. Um, of many of them, of, you know, holding on to that land for very, very many generations. And then, of course, there's a whole new um, a new group of people joining them as sort of, you know, the international super-rich pile their money into land in Britain because um, it's, it's trebled in value in the last um, 10 years and become very much a, a destination of choice for people who want to um, hide their money and, uh, yeah, sort of keep it somewhere nice and safe.
2: Well, and looking at the financialization of farmland here, I've just read a beautiful report from the Oakland Institute about the villagization in Ethiopia, the land grabbing around the world. It's pretty gloomy and doomy and feels uh like hard to fight. So what role is there what role does history play in any of that? And how um what are you finding in your travels about the way that these stories and legends and folk traditions Um, can inform contemporary action?
1: Well, I think people are really hungry for answers at the moment. You know, we have a a chronic problem with housing in England. We have a lot of health crises. Um, Our food system is becoming increasingly um, industrialized and, and in the opinion of many, not not fit for, for purpose. And also, you know, the way that that all feeds into environmental issues and climate change. And when you look through the lens of history and sort of get people thinking more about land um in the in the wider picture and and then connect that up to the present it gives people the opportunity to um to see how all of these different issues around food and housing and environment and health and, and climate change are all have quite a strong connection to the land and it's been um you know very much sort of the elephant in the room of British politics for uh, a lot of a lot of the past and it's really good to get people thinking a lot more about it now and in Scotland already you know it's it's uh, a very much topic of discussion you know it's something that people would be talking about down the pub as they sort of mull how to um try and yeah improve their lot but in england it's still very much a, a fringe thing and just trying to make sure that you know starting by teaching people old songs and getting them singing and thinking about the land and then eventually hopefully joining the dot so they start thinking about why we have such a an unequal distribution of
0: land
2: well, and that we arrived here not because of some cosmic fate or natural selection, um, but through a set of circumstances that were uh, that were designed by history, and whose and whose and whose evidence is visible, and whose consequence is visible, and that we can locate ourselves along that chain, and yeah, recognize absolutely. that our own actions might also uh, implicate our. Um, that's a progenitor, not an ancestor, not a progeny. Who are the future again? Oh, yeah, our kids. <laughs> we, we, we also could make determining factors. So let's, as Americans also, you know, we think of ourselves as, as the conquerors often. We, we the white we, uh, which is the dominant narrative, we see ourselves as the winners of a great dispossession and often don't think of ourselves as the dispossessed. Whereas, in fact, uh, I think that that contradicts the truth. Can you mind updating my narrative?
1: Yeah, no, so certainly, I mean, what, you know, I've been learning increasingly about the sort of narrative of the last 300 years of certainly, you know, England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales is a lot of people who were forced off their land. Ended up in the cities during the Industrial Revolution, but as many, if not more, of them, ended up on boats going to the New World and to Canada, America, and, and Latin America. And um, a lot of those stories about them being dispossessed from land um, in in Europe often weren't told to maybe their children and their grandchildren because they're a little bit embarrassed about the way that they um, you know been forced to migrate. So. You, you don't seem to have a dominant narrative in a lot of places in America that, you know, the reason why people had come to the New World was because they had been dispossessed off land in, in, in Europe. So
2: um the topics that you're that you're handling and the kind of aspiration towards a commons, in in one of the books I was reading last week, it talked about this Aspiration towards commons, the bits of wasteland that were held in common, the rights for panage and for forest woods, um, for grazing animals, for firewood, for gathering herbs, these are not, um, not purely aspirational, but their memory lasted longer than their than, the, than the rights. Can you talk a little bit about the role of memory and, and maybe where some of those ideas came from when they had their strengths? Um, and where
1: it's
2: yeah how how does that how does the song
1: relate? no, certainly, I mean um y- you know when you start looking back at at older um songs, you know there's often talk of um you know old England must pay us what she owes, or you know this idea that um a dominant narrative we have at the moment is, you know, this is progress and everything is better than it was in the past, but there's definitely a sense in folk songs and stories that that quite a lot has been lost along the way and a lot of rights have been lost. And this idea of lost rights connected to the commons is a very strong one, and there's a lot of talk nowadays about what it means to create the 21st century commons and re-commoning and, of course, in the sort of digital... Um, realm we see the creative commons and people who you know uh, embrace the internet as this idea that we might manage to create some some new commons but yeah the idea of sort of you know we've just become so uh, enslaved in the concept of private property and absolute ownership trumping everything else that starting to recondition ourselves to think about other ways that land might be held in trust for public good Um, You know, we need to kind of stir our imaginations and really reconnect with with how things have been in the past to get some inspiration for how things might be in the future. And, of course, folk songs and stories were very much where people's living memory was held for generations, you know, hundreds and thousands of years um, until sort of television and formal education and history books edited by white men with beards kind of came along and bashed it into submission. But it's all, you know, a lot of it is still there and um, it's, it's very vibrant and people are very hungry for it and really excited to reconnect with it.
2: Well, happily, uh, some of your songs are available um, free on the internet to download, <laughs> it, actually in the Commons. And available uh, into the iDevice. Um, there's a couple of them on the intergalactic mixtape of Agrarian Revolt that we sell in our Etsy shop. And then you have been taking these songs out on the road in mm. uh, in a show. You want to tell yeah. us about your show and how it works and where it's been and how it's going?
1: Yes, yeah, certainly. So. Um, when I first begun on this journey, I really wanted to share these old songs and songs of resistance and songs that our ancestors would have sung um, when they were standing up for their rights with my sort of friends and peers. And this this process of sharing those old songs evolved into a show called Three Acres and a Cow, a History of Land Rights and Protest in Folk Song and Story. And, uh, yeah, it's just gathered a wonderful amount of momentum it was uh only ever intended as a a one-off event but um Off the back of that performance, we got booked for more and then got booked for more. And and the show has now been performed 60 times to about 5,000 people in England, Wales and Scotland. And um, it's turned into a a bit of a collective. There's now a group of us performing this show. I've had several apprentices over the last few years who've then kind of taken ownership of the show and and made it their own. And also had the the privilege of working in Wales um, earlier this year. With a Welsh storyteller and folk singer, and trying to capture a, a sort of performance of similar spirit, but very much from a, a Welsh narrative perspective, which of course is, is quite different to to the English one so yeah we wherever we perform the show it 's a very flexible piece that incorporates old songs, stories and poems and has lots of space for local guests to be able to bring their own songs, stories and poems to it so that it always feels connected and rooted in the local area. And it's been amazing seeing how thirsty people are from all different backgrounds, whether it's performing in squats or old people's homes or universities or churches. You know, it's really um, appealing to a very broad demographic of people who um, maybe wouldn't come to something if they thought it was overtly political in nature, but are quite attracted to the idea of singing old songs and learning about old stories and um, yeah, just having an excuse to sort of reconnect in that sort of way.
2: And so how does it work? What kind of, a co- what kind of context are you able to get into? Because we've been figuring the similar thing, which is talking about trade future and regional economy. Mm. Rediversifying from monoculture back out into mo- something more human-scaled and mm. doing it in the context of performative sailboat stuff, yeah. we can bring it into mm. history museums and maritime museums. Mm. And I wonder, um, just, again, thinking about the growing body of work that is straddling agriculture, politics, you know, agrar- like loosely agrarianism and the arts, mm. where does that happen?
1: In in the context of the show that I'm doing?
2: Yeah, like where do you perform it?
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of the time we've begun being used as an outreach tool for organic growers, permaculture land projects, and other sorts of land projects who wanted to explain why they were doing the work they were doing to their volunteers and their wider networks and what its relevance was in a historic context. But increasingly, you know, we came to to realize that the land question and land distribution is very tied up in housing as well. And so we've definitely incorporated housing into it because for most of human history, where you grew your food was also where you lived. And it's only been in the last sort of 200, 250 years that there's been a divide in where people live and where people grow their food. So increasingly, we've been performing for, in, in cities for, for housing um groups who are trying to work out how we can have a more fair housing system and then obviously there's a huge amount of different religious ebbs and flows um in the last thousand years and it's been really interesting taking the narrative into faith-based groups and churches and just giving them an idea of where the seeds of their particular um brand of Christianity came from, because a lot of um, churches had incredibly radical roots when they began, and it's really interesting reconnecting faith-based communities with the sort of radical origins of of their beliefs.
2: Well, and recently, I mean, in the U.S., we have seen interesting action, faith-based groups putting their land into God's work, aka Mm. community food projects and Sovereignty, young farmers, organic farmers, mm. people on the land, and of course in England, a lot of that land was removed from the church's ownership in the time of the Reformation, yeah. and enclosed, yeah. uh, and no longer was available for the poor, who were yeah. being served by the church. But now in the new, in in the present tense, uh, there's a lot of public land that's being uh, enclosed, and I know that you have a public land for public good. Um, project you're involved with. Could you maybe give a bit of explanation of what's happening in the U.S.? I'm sorry, in England, and I'm happy to echo you back on U.S. stuff.
1: Yeah, no, certainly. So, um, you know, I think, as I said, there's a real hunger for answers at the moment as to why things are heading in such a a poor and sort of unjust direction when it comes to food systems and housing and other things and by looking at things through the lens of land that can really help people to understand it and a, a step that we're trying to take now is to just kind of having given people a bit of a space to sing about it and to think about it getting people together to talk about it and find out how say you know a young farmer might have far more in common with somebody who lives who is somebody who's being cleared off a social housing estate in London and you know how much that connects to the financialization of land and the financialization of, of housing and buildings and if people start having those conversations you know and we realize how much we've got in common how that might lead to um some sort of clear asks and and sort of campaign campaigns working on together. So we've sort of um, put together a loose coalition of groups who are hosting some events um, under the banner "Land for What" in England in um, October and November. And the hope is that if we plant a nice, bold, beautiful flag gracefully into the ground, that um, all sorts of different groups from different social economic backgrounds, and different political leanings will be interested to come together and to talk and to think about land and land distribution and land ownership and how that affects environment, health, housing, food systems and climate change. And and I genuinely believe people will realise how much we've got in common and that will galvanise us into starting to make some slightly Old asks um, of our of our political establishment and get a bit of a people's movement around land reform and challenging the current um land system and land ownership in in England and as I say in Scotland there's already been um, some significant victories in the last um five ten years about you know challenging um, dominant land ownership patterns. So I hope that um, we can learn from the situation in Scotland and not replicate it because England is quite a different beast, but um, certainly just take inspiration from the work that they've done.
2: Well, certainly, and they now have a land reform review group. They have um, paid government, a paid government council who's charged mm. to maintain momentum and, and implement the vision that's been laid out by... Um, the Land Reform Review Group,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and you know, their, 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 their points are really indisputable. You know, they want to enable more land-based enterprises. They want to see uh, economic development in rural areas. They want to have younger people starting businesses in those areas. They want yeah. to see more diversity and resilience. They want to have economic, a democ- more democratic uh, economic dem- democracy. Uh, more democratic economy. <laughs> and, uh, you know, foreign-held uh, hunt uh, or shoots that hold a town in stasis are obviously not necess- or, you know, according to anyone who looks at it, honestly not in the common, common good. So... Certainly. Public land for public benefit. In the U.S., we have um, had a lot of privatization of lots of things, and lately there has been selling off of, um, and actually to the sh- to the shock and horror of the Greyhound lugger who I was on last week, the, the boat crew who are shipping back and forth across the English Channel, but in the U.S. they're selling off lighthouses, they're selling off old schools, they're selling off post offices, and mm. uh, interestingly a lot of state-held lands... Uh, are not being made available for community growers like old prisons, old hospitals, <clears> mental <throat> institutions, um, Department of Transportation lands, etc. And so, that state-owned land, which clearly belongs to all of us, um, seems like a very powerful place to start for yeah. for ensuring access, especially for people of color, p- women, socially disadvantaged, young,
1: and um, and and small-scale growers. No, certainly. I mean, something that we've seen in London over the last 10 years, um, in the run-up to the Olympics in 2012 in London, there was a lot of money made available for community food growing as people recognized the sort of benefits it brought to to many different um, walks of life in cities. And we've managed to rescue a number of old um, state-owned plant nurseries that used to be used for growing um, plants for public parks and turn them into hubs for community food growing and places where we can start to reimagine um, uh, our food systems in a more sort of healthy, democratic way. And that process is still going on at the moment. We're in the process of um, trying to turn a site back into um, productive food use um, quite close to where I am here. And there's two acres under glass which, you know, could be lost. And that's that's an amazing resource and really just, you know, using it to inspire people to think about where their food comes from, how their food is grown, and also potentially, you know, inspire a new generation of people to get involved in food production because we are in a situation now where many of the farmers – on this island are very, very close to retirement and, um, yeah, just trying to work out what succession looks like for the, the sort of farming and food um, in, um, in this country.
2: Uh, it's a big project. How do That's we, okay. How do we, well, I've just come, as I say, on the sailboat across and uh, convening with this little sail trade network, uh, the Nordlease the... Loon and the lugger, one of whom is going back and forth England and France, one of whom is going Mexico, Caribbean France, the other one is going uh copenhagen amsterdam caribbean loop de loop and trading goods across the world, and they are very happy to have affordable birthing at the maritime museum, another case of affordable land issue for boats
1: mm-hmm. um
2: but we were talking about,
1: now wait a second, what were we talking about, the commons? We got from yeah. commons to um, state land being sold off and not being used for community benefit. Um,
2: My goodness, is this Lyme disease or is it old age or is it computers?
1: <laughs> I think you've been out at the disco too many nights recently.
2: <laughs> I wish. Well, there was a, there was a link and it's gone. i okay. Oh yes, they told me. Sorry, I remember now. They told me that when the the new airport wanted to be built in France, in Brittany, mm. there's mm. a lobby group that wants to build a new airport called Notre-Dame des Landes. Mm. And they the group got the permission to do uh, eminent domain on the, fa- the farms that were there to build this mm. big huge new ar- airport. Mm. And that made the farmers organize and made the activists organize and the anti climate change uh, uh, organized people. And they have been occupying that land for uh, almost a decade. And when there was an eviction and there was a bulldozing, there was a protest. And at that protest, there were 60,000 people coming mm-hmm. out mm-hmm. to support a land occupation to say, we don't need an airport here. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. And that, we don't have very many land occupations in the United States, but that has been a tactic much more on the table
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, in places like Brazil.
1: Yeah.
2: Is that a tradition that you talked about in any of your songs? The, what, kind yeah. of, what forms of resistance um, is
1: talked about in your songs? Yeah, no, certainly. I mean, blockading is, is, is a very popular one. Um, when I was in Wales earlier this year, I was learning about, um, farmers coming together to prevent their valleys being, um, being flooded to, um, make, um, Big reservoirs for drinking water. That was uh, something that happened quite a lot in the sort of mid 1900s in England and Wales and Scotland. And, you know, the nice thing about um, farmers getting involved in blockading is they've got tractors, and tractors are very, very, very useful for blockading. Um, but, sort of, going back historically, it's tended to be much more about tearing down fences. Rather than than blockading, um, so you know a lot of the time in the sort of 1600s, 1700s when fences were being put up, um, you know the uh, the levelers were were people who were very much about leveling the land, and, and what that meant was to be tearing down um, fences that were being put up to enclose land that had previously been held in common. So um, you know, sort of at certain times in history, it's been all about um, blockading certain times in history it's been all about taking down fences but one thing that does really um you know jump out at me is um you know a lot of the time when people have managed to successfully stand up for their rights you know there's been a degree of boldness and sometimes some um you know some physical force that's been needed to to accompany that boldness and um i'm always reminded of nelson mandela's words that um you know nonviolence is a is a really important tool, but it's not a, not necessarily a philosophy in in his, in his part.
2: Huh. Well, one of the things that we had in the U.S. during the Great Depression was tremendous um, economic solidarity Mm. in the face of farm foreclosures, where the bank would reclaim the land and all of the tools and then have an auction to sell off all the equipment. Yeah. And everyone would come, but nobody would um, bid more than a penny Mm. on any of the... the, Essentially, the community would subvert the action of the bank to liquidate Oh, that's
1: beautiful. That's beautiful. I just read The Grapes of Wrath recently, and, um, yeah, it was really, you know, interesting to just see how, yeah, sort of similar consolidations and using economic forces to... um, to, you know, you can either directly clear people off the land or you can use economic um, economic trickery in order to kind of um, clear people off the land and consolidate landownings. And, uh, yeah, the, the, the tricks don't change. They just sort of play out at different ways in different countries at different times. And as you mentioned earlier, you know, we're at a time at the moment where a huge amount of, of Africa is changing hands um, often as, you know, sort of people whose rights are aren't traditionally written down um, suddenly find themselves being turfed off by um, by some lawyers and politicians who've decided that uh, they'd write down who owns the land and maybe not um, agreeing with the oral traditions in terms of who owns the land.
2: Well, there's a very interesting uh, winner this year of the Golden Environmental Prize in Tanzania who found that uh, illegitimate actors were conspiring to sell off Pastoralist land, uh, and uh, and if they didn't manage to do it through governments, uh, and and kind of land that has already under national titling, then they would go one by one and deal by deal to assemble mm. ownership from individuals. And so his tactic was to put land into customary ownership by the community, such mm. that it can't be sold because it's owned by everyone. Yeah. Um, and and that really does fall into line with a lot of the traditions, both the kind of literary traditions in Tolstoy and Henry George and Vinoba Bave, who came to a lot of insights about commonly held lands as being a, a more durable and more egalitarian form. Mm. Uh, I wonder in the songs what you
1: see. Um, I think there's certainly... You know, recognize, uh, people recognizing that, that that things are being lost, and as I said, this kind of you know conflicting with this idea that you know the march of progress and everything's getting better all the time. And um,
2: so, what did they want? Yeah. when They wanted three acres and a mule. What was that? What did that mean?
1: Um, yes, yeah, so, so, I mean, three acres, Macau was um, the title of the English land reform movement in the late eighteen hundreds, and. Um, that was a period of time where there'd just been a significant redistribution of land in Ireland after the Irish Land Wars and the Irish Land League, um, following on from the Irish Great Famine. And, um, you know, inspired by the victories that the Irish had one in reclaiming their land back from the British um, ruling classes. People in Scotland and Wales and England were all agitating for land redistribution and land reform. And this was at a time when um, suffrage was just starting to be extended to people who um, didn't, weren't property owners, and didn't, um, you know, weren't wealthy people. I'm um, still sadly, you know, just men. It was to be quite a while longer until women got suffrage. But suffrage was just starting to be extended to a greater part of the population. And one of the um, things that people really wanted was to return to the land because they'd only moved into cities and started working in factories, you know, within living memory of a couple of generations. So this idea that, you know the land was a place where you were where where you were meant to be and you know food was something that you all grew and all shared together was still very much in living memory so yeah three acres Macau. um was the, one of the slogans of the land reform movement and um, was also in Wales. We, we found a, a lovely Welsh song called Tal Erua Beoch, which um, is Three Acres and a Cow in Welsh. So luckily there's a, a Three Acres and a Cow song that was um, a sort of uh, a, an English union song from the 1870s. And there's a similar song um, in Welsh, which is absolutely beautiful. And um, yeah, very, very fun to go around giving people a thing of.
2: We had a story in um, during the Civil War where General Sherman, who marched across the South, uh, retreating back to he's he was fighting for the North, but mm. uh, as he was retreating, he was burning um, burning everything in sight, all the buildings, all the barns, and then mm-hmm. as a result of that, he was followed by now homeless, you know, allegedly free people who were formerly mm. enslaved people. Mm-hmm. And those people had to be fed by his army. And Mm -hmm. so when he got back to Savannah, he sat down in a chair and wrote something called Sherman's Order, which promised those people um, 30 acres and a mule, a mule Mm -hmm. from the Union Army, with which to subsist, um, with Mm -hmm. which to build a subsistence. And uh, unfortunately he died, and unfortunately that order was revoked because it happened to involve some of the biggest most powerful uh, land interests on the coast. Like mm-hmm. Basically, it was um, for a 40 miles stretch down the coast that was going to be assigned to that plan. And so many people talk about 30 acres in a mule and 30 acres in a mule, same way as you. It has a long history. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's funny how right to land, although it was very much a part of the um, – Civil rights movement is only now starting to enter into the Black Lives Matter conversation. Only now is starting to be talked more and more about how we have more prisoners in the U.S. than farm owners, and what a small percentage of farm owners are of color, and what a great percentage of farm workers are of color, and what a great percentage of rural people go into the army um, as compared to the total population, and just really starting to look at this structural uh, issues of land, as it relates to structural, as it relates to um, systemic racism. No, and absolutely, enclosure and has
1: been um, the foundations of power for a very, very long time, and so much so that um, you know people have lost sight of that and forgotten it. And it's, uh, I think, it's really time for us to put land back. And people's agendas and uh, you know, if we can lay the foundations of that by singing it and inspiring people with, with creativity, that will really help people to connect with it so that we can then start having some meaty conversations about how to bring about change.
2: Well, on that note, it's time to wrap up our show and I have a chance to introduce the symposium that I've been organizing on behalf of Agrarian Trust. It's called Our Land 2.0. Tracing the Asequia Commons. It's a series of talks, exhibits, and happenings to advance the broadening discourse on land commons and farmland futures. It's in New Mexico. In November, there's six days of programming, mostly free. It'll all be videoed and audioed and available to you. Uh, you can listen to last, the one we did last year, which was Our Land 1 in Berkeley, and we hope that you will spread the word and come along and I think, Robin, you're going to make some media about your big meeting, aren't you?
1: Yeah, no, for sure. That's going to be on the 12th and 13th of November in London. And um, do our best to and, and and share the fruits of it with anybody who wants to find out more on the website, which is land.org.uk.
2: It's just land.org.uk?
1: L- land for what? Oh, or land org. for what?
2: UK. I was like, wow, that's a great URL. And I was gonna say, <laughs> We have, some. we have. There's a there's a, uh, a whole blog. It's called the Land Land News blog on the Agrarian Trust website. And then obviously there's the always pertinent, always amazing Land Magazine, which we hope you'll subscribe to, or else buy it from one of the upcoming Greenhorns events. Thank you, Robin, so much for joining. And if we can uh, listen to your to your music more in other shows then we will be happy to keep putting it up on heritage radio thank you everybody
1: perfect have a lovely rest of day bye bye
2: Still my love for you.